From New York, this is Democracy Now! There are still people buried here in this house. They didn't get the rescue that they needed, so they died. They rescued my children, and I'm trying to get covers for them and anything to wear from the house. The death in Morocco has reached 2,500 following the country's deadliest earthquake in over six decades. Rescue efforts haven't even begun in some remote villages. We go to the historic city of Marrakesh, which is about 40 miles from the quake's epicenter. Then, today is 9-11. 22 years ago, about 3,000 people died at the World Trade Center, Pentagon, in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Today, we look at another 9-11. 50 years ago, the U.S. backed a coup in Chile that ousted democratically elected President Salvador Allende. He would die in the palace that day. The coup led to a 17-year dictatorship led by General Augusto Pinochet, during which time more than 3,000 Chileans were murdered and disappeared. We have to unite to one day find the truth. I think we deserve it as a people. It is a silent vigil for women. We'll speak to the Chilean-American writer and professor Ariel Dorfman. He was cultural and press advisor to President Salvador Allende's chief of staff during the last months of his presidency in 1973. Allende's revolution, which was a peaceful revolution, was the attempt to put the resources of the country and the future of the country into the hands of the majority. And Allende basically was, was, was a movement for uh, social justice and for putting in the center of history the real protagonist of that history, which are the everyday men and women who build the country. We'll speak with Ariel Dorfman, who's author of a new book called The Suicide Museum. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Morocco, at least 25,000 people have been killed after Friday's 6.8-magnitude earthquake. The epicenter in the High Atlas Mountains was located about 40 miles from Marrakesh, causing buildings to collapse in the city's old town, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Search and rescue missions have struggled to reach survivors in rural villages where some of the greatest devastation occurred. This is a resident of the village of Moulebrahim. As you can see, our house is damaged. Everything is gone. We lost everything. We lost the entire house. There are no official visiting us. There's no help or aid. This is the will of God. We are sleeping like two, two days outside. And as you see, our family and our colleagues, our, our, our neighborhoods, everything is... Uh, it's very difficult for us. No food, no water. We lost also electricity. A correction. The death toll at this point is about 2,500. We'll go to Marrakesh for more after headlines. The African Union has joined the G20 group of the world's richest and most powerful nations. The addition of the bloc of 55 African states came as world leaders wrapped up the G20 summit in New Delhi Sunday with a joint declaration that stopped short of explicitly condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Instead, it declares, quote, all states must refrain from the threat or use of force to seek territorial acquisition. 
Ukraine, which is not a G20 member, called the statement nothing to be proud of, while Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov hailed the summit as an unconditional success. President Joe Biden used the occasion to announce a U.S. alternative to China's international development program, known as the Belt and Road Initiative. Biden's plan calls for creating a rail and shipping corridor linking India to the Middle East and European Union. After departing the G20, Biden traveled to Hanoi for talks with Vietnam's president and prime minister. Biden insisted his visit was not aimed at countering China's influence in Southeast Asia. That's what this trip was all about, having India cooperate much more with the United States, be closer with the United States, Vietnam being closer with the United States. It's not about containing China. It's about having a stable base, a stable base in the Indo-Pacific responded to Biden's visit by asking the U.S. to, quote, abandon hegemony and a Cold War mentality, unquote. Biden's trip to Hanoi came as jailed Vietnamese climate activist Hong Thi Minh Hong marked 100 days since her arrest on what supporters say are trumped-up charges of tax evasion. She's at least the fifth environmentalist to face such charges in Vietnam in recent years. In the Netherlands, police deployed water cannons at some 10,000 climate protesters and detained 2,400 people as they rallied on a major highway to demand their government stop funding fossil fuel companies. The action was organized by Extinction Rebellion. I think there are many ways to combat climate change, and you need all the different ways. Um, but for me, I feel that we're really in such an urgent situation that I really feel that this is necessary because the government is not listening, and we've tested for decades nicely, nothing is changing. So I don't know if it's going to help, but I think it's better than to stay at home. Here in the United States, a young activist with climate defiance confronted Democratic Congress member Steny Hoyer at a public event Saturday. Activists accused the longstanding Maryland lawmaker of paying lip service to combating climate change, even as Hoyer defended fossil fuel subsidies and his campaign received over half a million dollars from fossil energy interests. Steny Hoyer, I've come here out of necessity to ask you to please stop taking money from fossil fuel corporations that we might have a chance at survival. This comes as Phoenix at a record-breaking 55th consecutive day of 110-plus degree heat on Sunday. Meanwhile, in Hawaii, the governor updated the official number of missing people from the Lahaina wildfire to 66. The official death toll remains at 115. In Sudan, humanitarian aid and medical workers are reporting at least 40 civilians were killed Sunday during an airstrike by the Sudanese army in a crowded market in southern Khartoum. Around 70 others were severely injured, with many requiring amputations. Doctors Without Borders described the scene as carnage. The attack in one of the deadliest is one of the deadliest since violence broke out between the Sudanese military and the paramilitary rapid support forces in April. Airstrikes and bombings on residential areas have intensified as the two factions fight for territory. In Lebanon, state media reports at least four people have been killed as clashes between rival armed groups inside the largest Palestinian refugee camp resumed last week. The renewed fighting between members of Fatah and a Palestinian militant group known as Muslim Youth came as another round of ceasefire talks fell between the groups. Heavy clashes at the Ain el-Hilwe refugee camp first erupted in late July, leaving at least 13 people dead. 
The camp in the city of Sidon houses some 80,000 Palestinians. The Maldives presidential election is headed to a runoff later this month after no candidate secured more than half the vote in Saturday's election. The runoff pits the incumbent president, Ibrahim Mohamed Soleh, who has close ties with India, <clears throat> against opposition candidate Mohamed Mwizu, whose Progressive Party of the Maldives is more closely aligned with China. Chile is marking the 50th anniversary of the U.S. military coup that overthrew the democratically elected socialist President Salvador Allende and ushered in a 17-year dictatorship under Augusto Pinochet. On September 11, 1973, Chilean armed forces bombed and stormed the presidential palace, beginning a reign of terror that saw thousands of people killed or forcibly disappeared and tens of thousands tortured. On Sunday, Gabriel Boric joined thousands who marched the streets of Santiago to demand justice. This is Alicia Lira, president of the Association of Families of Executed Political Prisoners. These 50 years, more than the absence of our relatives, this is an act of homage on the 50th anniversary of the civil military coup. And we stress civil military because civilians have enjoyed impunity for 50 years. We'll have more on the U.S.-backed coup in Chile later in the broadcast with author and professor Ariel Dorfman. Here in New York, investigators have used DNA evidence to identify the remains of two more victims of the September 11, 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center. They're the first such identifications in nearly two years. Twenty-two years ago today, the attacks took place. Some 40 percent of the victims, or 1,100 people, remain unidentified, including dozens of undocumented immigrant workers. A judge denied a bid by former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to move his election interference case from Georgia to a federal court. A federal trial would have made it easier for Meadows to claim immunity due to his official government position. It would also have offered Meadows a more Trump-friendly jury pool and a greater chance the case would end up at the Trump-stacked Supreme Court. In related news, a judge released the report from the Fulton County Grand Jury investigating Trump and his allies' efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. It shows the jury recommended indictments for 38 people, including South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham and other high-profile Republicans. D.A. Fannie Willis ultimately indicted 19 people, including former President Donald Trump. Meanwhile, in New York, Attorney General Letitia James has updated figures related to Trump's financial fraud case, saying he inflated his net worth by as much as $3.6 billion a year, up from $2.2 billion, in order to secure loans and business deals. A federal judge ordered prison officials in Louisiana to remove children locked up in the former death row section of Louisiana State Penitentiary, known as Angola. The judge also said children could no longer be held at Angola, ruling it amounted to cruel and unusual punishment. For the past 10 months, children, mostly black boys, have been held in solitary confinement, denied family visits, deprived of education and mental health treatment, among other inhumane conditions. In Philadelphia, a police officer has been charged with first-degree murder for the killing of 27-year-old Eddie Izari in August. Mark Dial fatally shot Irizar at near point-blank range as he sat in his car. Irizar's family described him as quiet and said he was receiving mental illness treatment, including for schizophrenia. Relatives said he moved to Philadelphia from Puerto Rico about seven years ago and that he had difficulty understanding English. Charges against Officer Dial come after body camera footage contradicted the initial police account. This is Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner. These videos 
speak for themselves. The law and the jury instructions in Pennsylvania, the definitions of these offenses, are supported by this and other evidence. And that is why we have charged ex-officer Dial with these charges. Luis Rubiales, head of the Spanish Soccer Federation, has resigned amidst mounting pressure after forcibly kissing soccer star Yeni Hermoso during the World Cup trophy ceremony. Rubiales had already been suspended by FIFA and is being investigated by Spanish prosecutors for sexual assault. And in other sports news, 19-year-old Coco Gauff has won the U.S. Open. She's the youngest U.S. Open winner since Serena Williams' 1999 victor when she was just 17. Following her win, the 19-year-old Gauff thanked Serena and Venus Williams, along with other black women tennis players who preceded her. During the awards ceremony, Gauff also thanked tennis legend Billie Jean King for fighting for equal pay in tennis. Thank you, Billie, for fighting for this. Coco Goff received a record $3 million, the same as her male counterpart, Novak Djokovic. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, the death toll in Morocco has reached 2,500, following the country's deadliest earthquake in over six decades. We'll go to Marrakesh. Stay with us. Western Saharan musician Naim Alal, Algeria, which broke off ties with Morocco in 2021 after escalating tensions between the two countries focused on the Western Sahara conflict, said after the earthquake this weekend, it would open airspace for humanitarian and medical flights. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. At least 2,500 people have died in Morocco following a 6.8 magnitude earthquake Friday night. Another 2,500 people were injured. The death toll is expected to keep rising. The epicenter of the 6.8 magnitude earthquake was in the high Atlas Mountains, located about 44 miles from Marrakesh. Many villages remain inaccessible. Some areas can only be reached by helicopter. The hardest hit areas are among the poorest in Morocco, where many homes lack electricity or running water. The earthquake also damaged parts of Marrakesh, including its old city, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. These are some of the residents in Marrakesh describing what happened when the quake hit Friday night. 
I live on Mela Street in Medina, the old city of Marrakesh. The earthquake struck around 11.30 p.m. At that time, I was out shopping near Jama Alfina Square. I left my son and daughter at home. I was terrified when I saw the houses shaking violently, almost as if in a nightmare. I rushed back home, gathered our clothes and blankets, and prepared to sleep outside. We have lost nine people that I know of, including a family member and her newborn on Sabara Street. I don't know what to say. It was such a surprise. We were sitting here when this catastrophe happened, and the wall collapsed. There was a tailor in the shop, and he was leaving, and the wall collapsed on him. We got him out. We didn't know what fell on him. We didn't know he was there. People came and dug to find him and got him out. Morocco declared three days of mourning for what's become the deadliest earthquake to hit the country in over six decades. At the time of the quake, Morocco's King Mohammed VI was in Paris, where he owns a mansion near the Eiffel Tower. He was returned to Morocco, but hasn't spoken publicly yet about the growing humanitarian crisis. The king also hasn't publicly requested international assistance. Morocco's accepted aid offers from Spain, Britain, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates, but it has not responded to an offer from France. We're joined now by two guests. Brahim El-Ghabli is chair and associate professor of Arabic studies at Williams College, author of Moroccan Other Archives, History and Citizenship after state violence. He's from Urzazat, uh, Morocco, which was hit by the earthquake. And joining us from Marrakesh is Abdullah El-Halawi, uh, the head of the English department at Qadi Ayad University. He's also the director of the Master of Linguistics and Advanced English Studies. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, let's begin in Marrakesh. Um, let's go. Uh, let's go to Abdella El Halawi. Uh, can you talk about the situation on the ground right now? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, the situation on the ground right now is uh, very scary. People are worried about the uh, potential aftersh- aftershocks. Uh, everybody here is talking about the earthquake and uh, the incident of uh, Friday uh, at eleven eleven. Uh, still hovering, and uh, yeah, it's very scary. Uh, the uh, the death toll is increasing. The last number I have is twenty five hundred, and um, people are still complaining about the the lack of food supplies, and uh, and uh, their houses are all destroyed, especially in the mountainous areas. Professor, you're, you're joining us from Marrakesh. Uh, what happened? Uh, where were you when the earthquake hit? Uh, how did it affect the city? And and again, uh, there are reports that a lot of the areas in the rural areas are cut off from immediate help. Uh, yes, I am in Marrakesh. I was in Marrakesh. I was at home. Uh, and exactly at 11, 11 p.m., uh, I was sit- I was sitting in the living room and my little kid was in front of me and out of sudden uh, my uh, my little kid was shouting earthquake earthquake that was my third that that was my third experience with earthquakes so it was easy for me to recognize that it was an earthquake well uh, we live in a high building so we had to to run downstairs just to find all people crying and shouting uh, downstairs not knowing what happened exactly some of them were sure that it was an earthquake others were not but uh, thanks god i mean we didn't have we didn't experience any uh, deaths 
in my building and in my neighborhood. My family live in an area which is uh, very close to the epicenter of the earthquake, and some of my family members died there. Um, I'm trying to get in, in touch with them every day just to, to learn about the, uh, their condition, their whereabouts. And it's yes, they are cut off. They are complaining uh, because, I mean, they don't have food. Some of them uh, ha have to sleep. Uh, in open air, open space, because their houses are destroyed. So the situation is still uh, scary and very, uh, uh, very problematic. And and how is the are the local authorities and the government responding uh, to the crisis? Uh, um, uh, I receive. Very contradictory stories, depending on the areas. In some areas, it seems that the authorities are uh, responding in positive ways, trying to uh, to help the uh, the locals with food supplies, with uh, with tents, uh, and with uh, sometimes with clothes as well and blankets. But uh, some people in other areas are complaining about the uh, lack of communication with local authorities. I uh, someone called me yesterday saying that they called the Qaid, the, uh, the the gentleman who is responsible for the area, like the mayor of the area, and uh, the response was that he was on vacation and that he could not uh, help them. Uh, so these are some of the rumors, negative rumors that we hear about the uh, local authorities. But we are not sure. That's number one, and the stories are contradictory most of the time. Um, I want to bring uh, Professor Ibrahim uh, uh, El Gabli into this conversation from Williams College, though your uh, hometown in Morocco, Karzazat, uh, is the epicenter of the earthquake. Also, condolences to both of you for what has happened in your country. I mean, the death toll only expected to rise. If you could talk more about what you're hearing from family, friends, community in Morocco, but also where is the king? This uh, word that we're hearing of growing anger that the king has been absent. Does he even live in Morocco or does he live in France? Well, uh, Amy, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, and uh, these are great questions. Uh, where is that is a little bit removed from the epicenter of the earthquake. However, because of the way uh, Moroccan governorates or provinces are divided, they do share borders sometimes, like the High Atlas is shared between different uh between different governorates, and where is that is one of them. And areas closer to the epicenter are affected, like the rural commune of Telwat, the rural commune of Eram, uh, and also uh, Tidili. These are areas that are closer to where the uh, epicenter is, and uh, people's houses uh, uh, are damaged. And, of course, there is loss of life uh, in, in the Warzazat area. However, the city itself and the villages around are kind of like luckier and safer, despite the fact that they experienced the shock and the trauma of such a tremendous magnitude that 
a lot of them had never experienced before. When it comes to government politics and where officials are, and it's a lot like people have been saying a lot of things. I can't really pin down one. I I, I think the king lives in Morocco and. Uh, I think that he went to France like uh, a few days before the earthquake happened. And people, of course, are were left with a lot of questions about like the government, the response of the government, its immediacy, whether it responded urgently and all of that. And these are really interesting questions that they don't have answers to. But what they really think is the most important right now is for the aid and help and for people to really be on the ground to support the families, to think about plans to help people uh, rebuild their homes, kind of like resume uh, like some sort of normal life. And the bigger political questions, of course, will be asked later because I think they can be a diversion if we ask them in the immediate now when people are still mourning and people are still trying to just figure out who who died, who, sur- who survived, who is still under the debris, who has a chance of life. And of course, I wrote a book about uh, Moroccan politics and all of that, and I'd be happy to talk about it another time. But for me now, it's really like the focus should be on rescuing people, on getting aid, on making sure that every uh, solvable life is saved and uh, a chance of life is given to the people who are still struggling uh, under under the debris. And of course, like as uh, my colleague Abdullah said, like there are so many like versions and stories and people uh, things that people are saying. Like there are areas that are flooded with aid. And last night I was talking to people in the mountains, like really far, and they're saying there are areas that nobody has reached yet. And they think our message should be that we have to reach these people. We have to make sure that if they have even like a fraction of a percentage of possibility of life, that they be given that chance to survive and live and ex- and continue to exist. And uh, Professor Al Gabli, uh, in addition to the to the loss of the tragic loss of life, there are reports that many uh, historic sites. Uh, uh, in your country have also been damaged? Uh, Have you been able to verify that or give us an idea of what that means? The High Atlas is a really important historical site in Morocco. It does not just have classified historical sites that the state has declared as national patrimony or as national heritage, but it has a lot of buildings and constructions that have been important for the Moroccan history. Like in Talwat, there is the Kasbah of Al-Glawi, for example, which is a, a very important national monument. Uh, the, the Mosque of Tinmel, which was destroyed uh, by the earthquake, was built in the 12th century by the, uh, that's the cradle of the Al-Muwahhad empire that extended to Al-Andalus and most of North Africa. There are also other smaller houses where people like with like saints, for example, like the Mullah Ibrahim saint, for example, that's a very important spiritual location in Morocco. The the mosque of Kharbush in 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 Jam al-Fana in Marrakesh, for example, the whole minaret was 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 destroyed. And I'm trying to track down some places that have been destroyed, some of which I know the names and importance, others I don't know. So what they've been doing is just aggregate this data and then 
come up with some writing about it later so that people know about it. And really, the damage is also huge for the architecture in the region. Uh, adobe houses that have been like, they are very eco-friendly types of buildings with thick walls. They are warm in the winter because the winter is very harsh in the Atlas Mountains. And they are cooler in, in, in the summer. So now I think with this earthquake, what we will see is a total reinvention of air architecture in the area. My hope is that that type of architecture can be strengthened and made earthquake resilient rather than scraping it off entirely, because that would be another way like this, uh, this earthquake is going to change national heritage and national culture in Morocco. In addition, of course, to the fact that the majority of this area is Amazigh. And I hope that an exodus doesn't happen because then people will move into the cities and they would start losing their mother tongue and just become Arabized, which will be a tragedy for a million language like Tamazigh. And Professor Abdullah El Haloui uh, in Marrakesh, I mean, the Medina is world-renowned, the UNESCO heritage site. When Democracy Now! was in Marrakesh for the UN Climate Summit, we're just amazed at the history embodied in uh, these buildings and this area. If you could talk more as we wrap up about what you think need—what people need there right now. Uh, if you allow me just to go back to one important point about the mountainous area before I answer your question, I would like to say that this this uh, disaster, the disaster that people have been undergoing is not only about the uh, earthquake uh, in itself, but it's also because, I mean, the area is mountainous. And because the uh, big, uh, big rocks roll down from the top to the mountain, uh, down uh, the, uh, the the valleys. So many of the stories that I heard uh, witnessed to the fact that the uh, their houses were not destroyed by the earthquake per se, but by the rocks rolling down. So what's important to say about this is that about this disaster is that it's not only about the earthquake. Uh, the, the people living there are suffering from uh, from very cold winters during the winter time. Uh, from uh, floods during the, the summertime. And uh, now we learn that the area is an earthquake area, which means that another type of disaster is added up to the uh, list of disasters they've been undergoing. This is very important to know. Now, going back to your question about Marrakesh itself, I took pictures of some uh, really uh, precious monuments inside Marrakesh, like uh, the Tower of Fargus. Uh, 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 which is one of the oldest uh, prayer towers, mosque towers in Marrakesh that was totally destroyed. I heard some rumors about the Kutubia towers that it was damaged, but that's not true. I checked the place, I checked the tower, but it was not damaged. Uh, Marrakesh is uh, is historically well known uh, for being representative of uh, a very old Amazigh tradition in uh, in Morocco, and now the fact that I mean, Marrakesh and the areas around it are being affected in this way. There's always this risk of this Amazigh tradition being, uh, that may uh, be undermined 
uh, and that this uh, potential exodus of people, because that's a, uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, as far as I can see, uh, it will be a necessary uh, consequence of uh, this disaster. Uh, because of this, there's, there's always this potential risk of losing this heritage, linguistic heritage and architectural heritage as well. Well, I want to thank you both for being with us. Abdullah Al-Haloui, the head of the English department at Qadi Ayad University, also the director of the Master of Linguistics and Advanced English Studies, speaking to us from Marrakesh, which is about 40 miles from the epicenter in the Atlas Mountains of this earthquake. And Brahim El-Gavli, chair, associate professor of Arabic studies at Williams College. Thank you so much both for joining us. We will continue to cover what happens in Morocco. Coming up 50 years ago today, the U.S. backed a coup in Chile that ousted the democratically elected President Salvador Allende, who would die in the palace that day. The coup led to the 17-year reign of the dictator General Augusto Pinochet, during which time more than 3,000 Chileans were murdered and disappeared. We'll speak to the Chilean-American author Ariel Dorfman. He served as cultural advisor to Salvador Allende and has a new book out. It's called The Suicide Museum. Stay with us. Violeta Parra is the letter sung by Victor Hara, the Chilean singer, songwriter, tortured and executed during the Chilean coup. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Today is 9-11. 22 years ago today, about 3,000 people died at the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. We're turning now to look at what is sometimes called the other 9-11. Fifty years ago today, September 11, 1973, a U.S.-backed coup led by General Augusto Pinochet ousted Chile's president, Salvador Allende, a democratic socialist who'd been elected just three years earlier. Allende died in the palace on that day. Under the Pinochet military dictatorship, which lasted until 1990, more than 3,000 people were disappeared or killed, some 40,000 tortured as political prisoners. 
Chile's current president, Gabriel Boric, commemorated the 1973 coup Sunday with a ceremony in Santiago, along with Mexico's president, AMLO, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, who he thanked for the country's historic solidarity with the Chilean people. Both called for strengthening democracy in Latin America. Boric also joined an annual march near Santiago's La Moneda presidential palace with relatives of victims of Pinochet's dictatorship. The march was disrupted when counter-protesters attacked it and, according to Boric, quote, brutally violated graves in the general cemetery. This is Alicia Lira, president of the Association of Families of Executed Political Prisoners. These 50 years, more than the absence of our relatives, this is an act of homage on the 50th anniversary of the civil military coup. And we stress civil military because civilians have enjoyed impunity for 50 years. Another silent vigil Sunday marked the 50th anniversary of the Chilean coup and focused on the role of Chilean women as part of the resistance. Women dressed in black carried signs with pictures of victims of the dictatorship. This is Alejandra Perez. We have fellow women who have been detained, who have disappeared, women who have still not been found, families crying. We have to unite to one day find the truth. I think we deserve it as a people. It is a silent vigil for women. Just last month, the Chilean government launched the National Search Plan to search for people who disappeared during the Pinochet dictatorship. Past governments have discovered mass graves in Chile near former interrogation sites, but they did not properly identify the remains. For the rest of the show, we're joined by Ariel Dorfman, who served as a cultural advisor to Salvador Allende from 1970 to 1973. After the coup, Ariel Dorfman went into exile. Today, he's recognized as one of Latin America's greatest writers. His essays, novels, poems and plays have been translated into more than 40 languages— his new piece in The Nation today is headlined 50 years after the other 9-11, remembering the Chilean coup. His opinion essay in The New York Times is headlined, I Watched a Democracy Die. I Don't Want to Do It Again. His new novel is just out. It's called The Suicide Museum. Professor Dorfman, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, though this is a very solemn day, this commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the U.S.-backed coup, backed by Nixon, backed by Kissinger, backed by ITT. If you can talk about what happened on that day, you were in Chile. In fact, when were you last in the moneda? When had you last seen Salvador Allende before he died on this day in 1973? First, Amy, I'd like to thank you for having me on this day of mourning and defiance and also resistance and memory. As to how I lived the coup, it turns out that I was supposed to be at La Moneda that morning and dawn. I was supposed to have slept the night there because I, that was one of the ideas. You, you had turns where you're supposed to receive the, the, the news, whether there was a coup happening. And I switched places with one of my dear friends who in fact was uh, captured at La Moneda on the 11th. He was um, ex tortured and then executed. So I'm, I'm in a sense survivor because of him, or at least so I felt all these years, as I explain in the Suicide Museum, my novel. Uh, a series of other circumstances meant that I didn't get there because I slept at my home on the 10th at the evening instead of sleeping at the, La Moneda. And when I was supposed to be called by uh, the minister I was serving, sort of the chief of staff of, of President Allende, uh, called on a list. 
And he, he, nobody called me. And so I woke up much later and I wasn't able to get to La Moneda. And what happened years later when I met him and, and I asked, why did you take me off the list? Why wasn't I called? And he said, somebody had to tell the story. And, you know, I had already figured out that in some sense, that's why I was spared, or at least that's what I made sense of the the, the darkness that surrounds all this, you know, the, the, the chaos that surrounds all this, uh, that I was meant to tell the story. And in some sense, I'm doing that right now. In other words, 50 years later, I was 31 years old then. I was almost a kid, you know. Uh, 31 years later, I'm still telling that story. And now I've told it again in, in, in this new novel. But I've been telling it. In fact, I've been telling it on Democracy Now! several times already which is the story of Chile, what happened, why it happened, why that coup happened, but also how we resisted and how we changed history by resisting and how we're an example of how, if you believe enough in democracy now and tomorrow and the future, then you will be able to defeat the dictators of now and tomorrow and the future. And Daryl Dorfman, what's the significance of having the new president of, of Chile, Gabriel Boric, be part of the commemoration uh, uh, and to make sure the world doesn't forget what happened 50 years ago in Chile? You know, when Boric was elected, the first thing he did, uh, when he was inaugurated, really, the first thing he did when he entered La Moneda, that palace that was bombed and assaulted and destroyed and where Allende died, he broke up protocol and he moved on the on the plaza where, where in front of where the, the, the moneda is, where the presidential palace is. And he went to spend a minute contemplating in silence the uh, the statue that Allende of Allende that has been erected there. And then he went into the, the, the building and, and he quoted Allende's last speech and said, never again will this happen. We will never again allow this to happen. Now, Boric is not, of course. Allende anymore. I mean, you, you can't repeat history. But he is a wonderful example of how the new generations have not forgotten. Uh, what Boric has tried to do, and it's very important to, to, to mention this, he's tried to get all the presidents of all the political parties from the right and the left to sign a declaration deploring that coup and saying that there will never be a coup again. And the four right-wing parties have refused to sign that declaration. So he is looking towards the future. He's looking towards the fact that that he's living in a country where 36% of the people still justify the coup. They still say the coup was good. They still think that Pinochet was a great statesman. Uh, we're still living in some sense under the shadow of Pinochet. And of course, we're living under the gigantic light and not the lighted shadow, we can call it, you know, of Salvador Allende. And in some sense, I think that for many, many years, we're still going to have that struggle going on. And I, I feel privileged and honored and humble, really, to be part of that struggle for memory, to keep that memory alive and not forget what happened there and not forget the glorious thousand days of Allende, where he tried for the first time in history to create a, a society that was just and equal and liberated without shedding blood. All the revolutions before then, all of them from the French Revolution onward, had uh, violence at, at its origins and it killed many of its own supporters. And we never, never did that. 
In fact, we didn't kill not only our supporters, we didn't kill anybody. We didn't torture anybody. We didn't close Congress. We didn't close uh, the newspapers. We didn't close the organizations or, or prohibit the trade unions. We didn't persecute anybody, which are all things that began to happen immediately on September 11th, 50 years ago. More or less at this time, I was hearing the last words of Allende, and we were, we were being hunted down. Can we talk about the U.S. role, which was so significant? Fifty years after Allende's electoral win in 1970, the National Security Archive released a series of documents showing why and how President Nixon, as National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger, who just turned 100, sought first to prevent Allende from being inaugurated and later to oust him from the presidency. In a secret briefing paper on October 18, 1970, just weeks before Allende was to take office, Kissinger wrote, quote, Our capacity to engineer Allende's overthrow quickly has been demonstrated to be sharply limited. The question, therefore, is whether we can take action, create pressures, exploit weaknesses, magnify obstacles, which at a minimum will either ensure his failure or force him to modify his policies at a maximum, might lead to situations where his collapse or overthrow later may be more feasible, he wrote. Two days after his inauguration in Santiago, Kissinger wrote, quote, The election of Allende as president of Chile poses for us one of the most serious challenges ever faced in this hemisphere. Um, if you, Ariel Dorfman, can talk about the role of the United States as Kissinger continually threatened, and clearly, though he doesn't write specifically about this in his books, now that the documents are out, shows how he fought to engineer this coup, at least to support it wholeheartedly. Well, Kissinger is, is a war criminal. We all know that. And it's uh, shameful how he is being lionized constantly by the press and the bipartisan press in that sense. Uh, you know, Kissinger was right. He was right in the following sense. Allende was setting an example because the guerrillas in Latin America had basically failed. The, the urban guerrillas or the Tupamaros in Uruguay or the, the, the guerrillas that, that were fighting in the jungles of Colombia or Guatemala. That was not the way which, which would go forward for Latin America, as it's been proved now, right, where we have a series of left-wing governments who have won the ballot box. And he understood very clearly that Allende was more of a threat than Cuba was to him. Because Cuba could be, the, the Cuban example could be suppressed with military aid or with counterinsurgencies. How do you how do a counterinsurgency against a people who are armed with the vote, who are armed with their consciousness, who are armed with their, their desire for liberation and love for one another and solidarity? And so he understood that he had to destroy Allende because Allende, if Allende's example would have spread through Latin America, then U.S. interests would have been terribly, uh, you know, compromised, which, of course, was a moment in, in, in the moment of, of the Cold War. So that was that was it. Now, l let me tell you a little anecdote. Uh, you know, some some months, perhaps a month before the, the, the coup, there was a, a truck, a truck driver strike. And we went up into the hills of Santiago sort of to do a little bit of military training. It was ridiculous because we had no military training whatsoever. A group of us. As we went down the hill, we saw the truck drivers who were having this enormous feast with all the, the, the grills and, and all, the, all the stuff which had been hidden away, you know, to, to sabotage the economy. And they saw us, and of course, they recognized us as, as Allende supporters. And you know what they did? They took out these sheaves of bills, of dollar bills, and waved them at, the, at us. 
they wave dollar bills at us. I mean, I'm talking about the everyday, right? So this is something that happened. We know that the CIA was was helping the media, that they helped the campaign, and that they were just allowing, of course, their military, the, the CIA trained or the, the Defense Department trained School of America's officers to take over. And they engineered, if not the coup directly, they, they created and facilitated the movements because they also sabotaged our economy with the invisible blockade. So the United States is, 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 is very directly responsible for this. I, I do want to say the following, however, and I've said this over and over again. We should expect the United States to have acted in this way. And we should have expected, and we did expect, the Chilean oligarchy, those who were prosperous in Chile and rich in Chile and had lived off the exploitation of our workers, our intellectuals, our peasants for centuries. We should have expected them to be against Allende, use every dirty tactic against us. That does not signify that we don't have to think about what we may have done wrong. And we have spent 50 years thinking about this, and the result is our current democracy. What I mean by that is the defeat of Allende is not only the victory of right-wing people and of the United States. It is also a defeat in the sense that it was a failure on our part to do as much as we could. We were much too divided. We were much too sectarian. We did not do what we should have done, what we've done since then, which is create the most vast coalition possible for the changes that are necessary. I need to say this because, you know, I, I, I deplore what the United States did, but you can't blame them for doing what they did Though, of course, so many of the American people were had such extraordinary solidarity with us. I mean, all the American people should be very proud of what they did in favor of democracy in Chile, even as their government was trying to destroy us. And Ariel, in terms of the impact of the uh, Pinochet years on the rest of Latin America, the, this period of darkness, not just in Chile, but in Brazil and Argentina and other countries uh, where uh, military and extreme right-wing government seized power, what was the I impact for those who are not familiar with that history on the rest of Latin America? Well, Uruguay had already had its coup, and uh, Argentinian coup was coming coming soon. Soon they got rid of the Bolivian and Peruvian uh, progressive uh, leaders uh, who, were, who were in that country. So the Chilean example spread. But, you know, it's not just in Latin America. You know, Pinochet said in 1981, in March 19, 1981, he said, we were alone when we did the coup, but now everybody is imitating us. And what he meant by that was that the neoliberal economics of the Chicago school, Milton Friedman and his Chicago boys, had used Chile as a laboratory. And that laboratory, what was done with, with, with Chile, which is great um, free market fundamentalism. And that, that example is the one that then is now, in fact, prevalent in the world and is part of the crisis of the world today. So Chile created this, this uh, situation where both the repression and the Condor countries created this, uh, this, this repression, which uh, John Dingus has, has spoken about so eloquently. And um, that, that situation of repression was also you know, accompanied by an economic model, which is a model where Profit is all that matters. The bottom line is all that matters. Solidarity does not matter. And it took over the world. It took over Thatcher's England first, and then it took over Ronald Reagan's trickle-down economics, where the idea is to reduce the state 
to its minimum, except for defense, of course, and uh, and surveillance, and not use the, those resources for for the development of uh, the, the the welfare and the, the the happiness of the people. The Suicide Museum. Uh, the narrator is a Chilean-American author, playwright, and activist by the name of Ariel Dorfman. Uh, tell us why you decided 50 years uh, after the coup to write this novel. Well, you know, I had been thinking for many, many years that somebody, I didn't I think it would be me, of course, uh, would be going back to Chile to find out and investigate whether Salvador Allende had committed suicide or had been murdered. I felt this was the central enigma of our country because there were many who said, oh, he died heroically. And many who said, especially on the right, they said, no, he was a coward and he killed himself, right? Rather than face the consequences of the disaster he had led his people into, right? The coup. And uh, for many years, I kept on thinking, well, who would narrate this? And then two things happened. One was I, I realized that the person who should go back was an avatar of myself or an alter ego, somebody who just like me has my chronology, my family, my wife, Angelica, my, my children, my friends, and go back when I went back in, in 1990, went back from exile and create a sort of alternative reality, like in a multiverse where this person who's me and who isn't me, right? Because I, I treat him with ruthlessness, ruthlessness. I, I, I treat him like, like, like he, he, he's, he's one of those brothers that you, you're constantly criticizing. He lies much more than I do. At least I hope that he lies much more than I do. And, and he's, he's, he's scared more than I am, I think. And so I created this character who's myself and not myself because I felt that it was the best way of going into the story of Chile without the limitations of history. You know, I, I quote a, uh, an epigraph by Novalis, the, the, the German poet of the, of the 18th century. And he says, the novel is born of the deficiencies of history. So the novel allows us to explore this. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't take the story of Allende's suicide and just uh, do a, a sort of an essay on it, because that would not tell the story, the deeper story of Chile. And this allowed me to, to interview all sorts of people, real and false, and, and go into that. The second thing that happened was that suicide, if, if Allende committed suicide, that is much related to the fact, and I'm not sure about that, uh, it's much related to the fact that we are committing suicide as a species. So I had the person who was sending this Ariel Dorfman character, he's the character, right? We're sending him back to Chile, uh, mischievously, we're sending him back to Chile in order to find out if Allende committed suicide, because this man, this billionaire who sends him there, is worried about climate extinction. He thinks we're going for the apocalypse, and he needs to create a suicide museum, a gigantic, colossal museum dedicated to uh, the suicides of history and ending up with the suicide of humanity. So we could wake up humanity to this. So those two things came together, and I thought, okay, this allows me to bring together my two obsessions. One is Salvador Allende, bring him back to life rescue him from the iniquities of history, uh, tell his whole story in some sense, and go to La Moneda, where I was unable to go. I go back to La Moneda, but I go back imaginatively through two protagonists, one of whom says Allende committed suicide, and the other who says he was there when they murdered him. And so I brought this all together in one gigantic, colossal novel. 
And what do you conclude about what happened to Salvador Allende, who died in the palace? This is uncontested on September 11th, 1973. But you know, Amy, I, I, I can't undercut my own characters because, no, no, seriously, <laughs> you know, you have to respect them or they take terrible revenge on you. They come in the night like ghosts that I have to I have to believe that the, that the characters have got it aside. I leave it up to the people of Chile and the people who read the novel to decide which of the two theses are, are correct. I don't want to take sides in that as an author. And if I take sides as an author, I will be undermining my own novel. So I have my own uh, opinion on this, and I sort of get to that opinion. But as soon as I get to an opinion in the novel, immediately something happens that makes me change my mind. And then I get to another opinion, and I change my mind, which, of course, keeps the tension going, which is what you want in, in a novel, which is, after all, a thriller, right? It's a suspense. But it's a suspense in relation to the, the, the enigma of Allende, and it's also suspense in relation to whether this character Allende, uh, I'm sorry, this character Ariel, my gosh, uh, he's also a character, Allende's also a character. Uh, this character Ariel will uh, come to, to terms with the trauma that he suffered because he survived the coup, and whether the billionaire who sends him there will suffer, will, will, will manage to overcome the traumas that he himself has, his secrets that he has. So it's also a story of a journey of two men trying to figure out, with women, very important, because it's the empowerment of women is always central in my work and central in this, in, this, in this novel. I'm always trying to find a way in which I can tell that story so that people see it in a very different light. It's also sort of a model of what I'd like the, the, the world to see, because I say, I say at the end of the novel, I say, Allende is relevant today to the world. Because his example that democracy and more democracy and more democracy is the solution that everyday people in, in, who, are, who are protesting today, that they are the clue and they, they are the, 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 the key, really, la clave, I would say in Spanish, the, the key to how we solve the dilemmas that we're in. Allende is still speaking to us today, and I continue to think that that is so. I, I said so in a, a long, a long essay in the New York Review of Books, uh, which came out this week. And, and Ariel, we only have about a minute left, but I'm, I'm wondering, following the coup, you went into a long period of exile. How has that, ex how did that exile shape you and the writing you've come to do? It changed me significantly, you know, because I, I opened up to the world and, and the world opened up to me. And I, I had, of course, been brought up in the States. That's why I speak the English that I do. And that was one of the great weapons that I had. But I spent many of the years just seeking solidarity and seeking to help the people in Chile. And then I, I began to write. I began to write. And it, it really created, I think, uh, it created this person you're looking at as a sort of a bridge. I feel as if I'm a bridge between Spanish and English, between the United States and Chile, between the first and the third worlds, between readers everywhere in that sense. And I think that if I had stayed in Chile, which I really wish I had, I asked the people in Chile, let me stay, let me stay. And they said, ah, you want to write the great novel of the resistance? Get out of here. You're so valuable outside. And they were right, you know. So I went out and it changed me too much. It changed me to such a degree and the country changed so much that I ended up leaving Chile after the after the after I went back in 1990, which of course is also in in the novel, The Suicide Museum. Well, but I I, I, I don't I, I repent of having 
been in exile, but I don't repent of the results that happened to me. I'm so sorry for all those who died in my place. Ariel Dorfman, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Duke University professor emeritus, author of The Suicide Museum. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.